Hello, this is Todd Miles of Food Trucks in Babylon. The recent revelations of Ravi Zacharias's behavior, they've really rocked the Christian world. People who had been helped by his teaching and preaching ministry have felt betrayed, wondering what to make of what he taught. His behavior has also raised the issue of spiritual abuse in the church. So we're glad to be able to bring this two-part podcast with Ken Garrett to you, which specifically deals with spiritual abuse in the church. And our prayer for this podcast is to raise awareness of the dangers of abusive pastoral care and offer hope to those who are hurting. Spiritual abuse is um, what happens when a person uses a particularly metaphysical or spiritual uh, philosophy or ideology to gain influence, uh, undue influence and control over a person's life. You are listening to Food Trucks in Babylon, a Western Seminary podcast. I am Todd Miles. I'm here with Ryan Lister. Hello. Today, our guest is pastor and author Ken Garrett to think with us about spiritual abuse in the church. Ken is pastor of Grace Church in downtown Portland, author of the book, In the House of Friends, Understanding and Healing from Spiritual Abuse in Christian Churches. Join us as Ken talks about the dark issue of spiritual abuse and offers tried counsel on how to avoid abusive churches and ministering to those who have been hurt by those who are supposed to help the most. Ken, tell us about yourself. Uh, What would Sharon, your wife, say who you are? She would say uh, (laughs) my husband grew up in Portland, uh, right in this, in the old neighborhood here, Um, is a was a paramedic for 23 years and now is pastor at Grace Church Portland. In in downtown Portland? In downtown Portland, sure. I've been there for, I guess, about 17 or 18 years now. Have have the riots and the just the general upheaval downtown, has that reached your church? Uh, Yes, it has in terms of the experience of our congregants who live in many of them in the the apartment complexes surrounding the church. Uh, in terms of vandalism and violence, there's been some windows broken in some buildings around us, but our you know, church has been fine, and uh, so we're, we're doing okay with that. But it's been disruptive to the congregation. We've lost some people. Mm. Mm-hmm. Have you guys been able to minister in the midst of that? or No, not well. Since, since it takes place in a time of COVID, right. we're not really down there anyway okay. physically. So. Uh, most of our caring for people has just been our people that go to the church that live down there and are, of course, dissettled when the, mm. you know, they have asthma and there's tear gas and then mm. they're scared and, and uh, issues like that. So yeah. just looking out for them and, and uh, trying to guide them into representing Christ in a very ground zero, strange kind of place. Yeah. yeah. I've wondered if you've ever thought about how you minister in the midst of tear gas before that's probably a new yeah, there's no class on that in seminary i guess yeah so. i i wouldn't know yeah. <laughs> preaching with tears in your eyes yes. yeah 
Good. Well, Ken, uh, we wanted to have you on the show because of the book that you wrote, uh, In the House of Friends, Understanding and Healing from Spiritual Abuse in Christian Churches. Uh, how did this book come about? A lot of it's biographical. Uh, so can you take us through uh, what, what took place? To- Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You want me to go back to the beginning? Kind of? uh, uh, you could skip like Genesis one through. Uh, <laughs> but no, <Okay>. so. <laughs> yeah, d- yeah, I think it would be helpful for our audience to hear how the how the experience arose. You got yeah. it. Yeah. You got it. Yeah, that's that's relevant. Okay. Um, well, it's impossible to really overemphasize the impact that Keith Green had on me, like a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, Keith Green it, it tragically died in a plane crash. I think he was 26, 27 years old. And uh, so was chronologically a fairly young Christian. So he was very strident. <laughs> and he mm. would make a lot of calls for you to don't go to McDonald's, get home and get on your knees and pray and figure out what country God wants you to go be a missionary in. Mm. <laughs> you know, so, so that really affected me a lot mm. because of probably a personality type that was very performance-oriented yeah. in me. And, and uh, so that, that had a big impact on my life. And it was about that time when I joined the military okay. and uh, joined the 82nd Airborne, was a paratrooper and a paramedic there and got married. A lot of big life changes and high intense uh, training and professional things going on along with my religious development. Mm. So um, the short end of it is by the time I got out of the military in 1984, I really, you know, spent a lot of time reading through my Bible and praying and and, uh, um, along with being in a a fairly uh, intense uh, a military group, so so it it, it made me a, a real, uh, I think, kind of a hard-charging kind of person in terms yeah. of setting goals and going for it. So um, I finished out my, my military uh, down in California as a dust-off medic uh, in, in, uh, in the Salinas and in, in, uh, that area. And during that time, I felt certain that I'd been called to ministry. And uh, we really needed to settle somewhere. So we moved back to Portland, my wife and I. She grew up here in Portland, too, and we met in high school. And um, we came home out of the military in 1984, pregnant with our first, Mm -hmm. and uh, immediately began exploring different alternative Christian communities. We looked at a uh, a Christian intentional community that lived up outside of Washougal. Uh, Wonderful people, good friends, and... Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, we, we went and spent some time with them to get to know what they were about, explored other other type things. Uh, so you really are like a child of the Jesus People movement. It, is, that, is, is that fair to say? I, I mean, it, it I sounds like... I think I would be the little brother of the okay. Jesus people. Right. Yeah. My, okay. the big, so a little afterwards. A little afterwards. Okay. Yes, just a little afterwards, but very intrigued by it. Mm-hmm. And, you okay. know... Uh, yeah, so so uh, I was getting off shift one morning downtown uh, in, in, as a paramedic, and a girl came in and saw that I had a Bible out, mm-hmm. and she said, oh, you're a Christian? And I said, yeah, and, she, and then she asked a few uh, perfunctory questions about what I was doing and where I went to church and whatnot, and invited me to her church, mm-hmm. which was a church focused on discipleship that met in a home. And uh, really was training its people, its men in this in this church, to be pastors. Uh, 
Well, that was like bing, bing, bing. <laughs> Check, checked every <laughs> yeah, everything box. Everything was going off. Yeah. yeah. And we lived kind of near the neighborhood, too. And Sharon shared a lot of the same Mm-hmm. feelings as I did, although she had greater concerns about me needing to be brought under control from some kind of leader or mm-hmm. some kind of positive spiritual uh, um, influence because I, I did not grow up in the same kind of religious milieu that she did. Sure. I was a little crazier. <laughs> so uh, we visited church on the first day, and I describe it in my book how we were recruitment began right on the first day by a couple of deacons and I tell the story in it how they challenged me to be there the next week when I was supposed to be working and challenged me new guy at work to call the old timers on the company phone list to try to find somebody to come in and work for me and uh, um, so we were looking for an intense church like that and we found it (laughs) and uh, it was very intense uh, scripture memory started at week one, two verses a week, and then passages. And uh, you had a prayer meeting, prayer, you know, small teaching time on Wednesday evening, uh, Bible study Sunday morning, service Sunday afternoon, prayer meeting Monday morning, and then discipling opportunities throughout the week where you would meet with somebody who was what we called following you up. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing particularly... Uh, dastardly about that term or or philosophy but of course it was a a framework that was used to to exert a a really inordinate amount of control Uh, so anyway we we were recruited into this church and uh, it was it was really quite a program they had going it was run by a couple of guys from western one of them had graduated and the senior pastor had not graduated but there we were um as we progressed along with the church's educational structure, we went out of Bible studying and book studies into church history, theology, I mean good theology, uh, biblical Greek, biblical Hebrew, and philosophy. And, and so it was a very academically oriented church, in its, especially in its initial years. So... That appealed to me because it was a kind of a checkbox discipleship. I could say, yeah, I, you know, I, I memorized that this week. I'm, I'm the best Greek diagrammer here. I, I mean, it gave me all kinds of things that really satisfied mm-hmm. my need to be, uh, to be excelling like that. Well, along the way, um, there were things that, uh, that, I attributed to the discipline structure, the training structure of spiritual discipline in this church, prayer meetings, Bible studies, uh, evangelism, you know, on the job, uh, putting my resources and time and energy into the good and development of the church as opposed to my house or accruing more money or going back to school or whatever. Um, But along underneath the program, the uh, senior pastor had a growing problem of alcoholism, Mm -hmm. drug abuse, uh, and as became clear in the, in the later years, uh, sexual infidelity and, and womanizing. And uh, after we left, he ended up being prosecuted for child abuse, for uh, sexual assault of children. So 
while these things were not so intensely going on in the beginning, the church was two years old, or four years old, actually, when I first visited in 84, uh, everything came around um, by the time of the, of the early to mid-90s, where we were, in some ways, this is almost impossible to describe, we were kind of like a crime family, that uh, studied the Bible a lot. <laughs> I, and, and I know that sounds weird, <laughs> but I've had enough long walks with you and you would talk with me about your experiences there. And uh, I, 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 mean, I remember just a, a couple times where like you were just kind of, you know, you were kind of like debriefing or unloading and, it, and, and you would give me a hug afterwards you say oh thanks so much for listening to me Todd and 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 you needed a hug yeah yeah, yeah, to me and and, and you would like be happy and joyful and walk away and I'd walk into my house just like catatonic what have I just heard things like that don't actually take place sure uh so maybe you could walk us through some of the no I'm just kidding (laughs) yeah well the the what I mean by that statement is that we tolerated a lot of behavior and that that was criminal, uh, particularly around theft and drug abuse and drug thefts, mm. and uh, occasionally ran into some violent uh, situations because we did deal with street drugs. But it wasn't all of us. It was just me and a few others. Uh, but there was no sense of uh, correction or, or anything. It was all a spiritualized, hey, that's bad, I repent, let's move on. The reason that was tolerated is because the leaders themselves were so compromised mm-hmm. and so so sunk themselves and participating in that stuff that uh, it just became a, 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 a big, ugly mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, that started changing for me uh, in the early 90s after I'd been there for probably six years or so. I was living communally. Uh, Our ministry had three or four large homes that we would rent and then we would have several families move into those homes and it was all ostentatiously for the purpose of training in real life, you know, day, day by day discipleship I, yeah today they might say doing discipleship you know it was that it was that idea and um i was living uh in the home with the with the pastor who had an apartment at the basement of the home him and his wife and so our lives and our money and our children by this time we had two children and, and had our third daughter right before we left we were embedded deeply into the uh, the community life of the church and we loved our fellow members very very much mm-hmm. very very much i i love them now to this day they are victims and deluded as i was mm-hmm. so other than the the uh the main guy and and a few yes men here and there they are deceived and deluded like i was so nonetheless we loved them very much, and so we were all very close with each other, and uh, really went, really went off the rails in terms of our marriages and faithfulness in in the marriage relationships, uh, in terms of the exclusivity of the relationship between parent and child, hmm. to where 
I got my family in our home and we are raising our children. It became, these are the children of our church. I need, I'm responsible for them, but there are a lot of adults in their lives that tell them what to do. And very unhealthy breakdown of those kinds of, of those kinds of roles. And so it just became clear that I wasn't going to get what I wanted. I wanted to be a pastor mm. and I wanted to preach and I felt called to that. Mm. And, and, uh, uh, and, and it became increasingly clear by this time, my daughters were 11 and nine, I think. And it had just become increasingly clear that there was no hope that I could see in this church of me ever being sent out to start a church or of my family being healthy or anything. And now, like you said at the beginning, mm-hmm. that was part of what the training goal was, or at least what was presented to you. We are going yeah. to disciple you into being pastors is that correct yes so that was and, on the front end sort of oh yeah and okay. then i would be released okay to a i think they talked about starting churches up and down the i-5 you know corridor yeah. are and, there uh, any churches that came out of that church oh no okay right. <laughs> yeah no that was a recruitment tool gotcha it really was um there's no no ever there was never a plan to do that the the loss of control would have been unbearable to them mm. so um as I became disaffected with the church through the years, you know, I would start out thinking, yeah, maybe I'll start the church in Salem. Mm-hmm. And then the next year it would be, how about if I have Medford? And then finally it was like, how about if I go to Mexico City and start the church? Because <laughs> I, I realized I didn't want to be with these people, with these leaders. Uh, I didn't like them. I didn't like what they'd done to me, my family. Um, so, uh, And yet you could not get out, though. Uh, well, yeah, that's a very good question, and that and it actually kind of relates to the most rudimentary thing people will ask us. Well, why didn't you just leave? Well, <laughs> might lose my wife. I'm not sure if she'd come or not. Mm-hmm. Definitely lose where I live, everything I own, and I already don't even have a credit rating anymore because I've messed up my credit so mm-hmm. terribly, and I am under the impression that God put me there to be trained for ministry. Okay. And uh, um, so I couldn't leave. You're, you're right. And that is why I couldn't leave. Okay. Uh, there were people that left and, and uh, it was really sad the way they'd be cut off and ostracized and, and everything. I did not join the cho- church for any sense of community. Um, mm. A lot of people and I think most people probably that join these uh, abusive churches and cults they are looking for a sense of community. They want friends mm. and they, 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 they want their families to grow up mm-hmm. together in a safe, mutually shared value system and all of that. I wanted to preach. I wanted professional development to be a pastor and a preacher. That's, that's what, got, you know, I grew up in this town. I had friends and mm-hmm. it just yeah. wasn't something that I thought of. Now with Sharon, it was, she was looking okay. for that community. And uh, so that was her, you know, her approach. So um, by about 1995 or so, I was uh, pretty much identified by the leaders as not being very loyal to them. Um, um, My wife was uh, generally nervous around me uh, because they communicated to her how I was pretty unstable and not to be trusted, I think. My children were... Uh, 
we're, we're told in different settings that their dad was kind of a spiritual troublemaker. So, so mm. they too would sometimes, I would feel pull back from me a little bit uh, because I was in the most important community of their lives. I was obviously not, you know, the, 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 the number one no. guy. All in. No. Yeah. Something <laughs> was wrong with me. So, um, yeah, that started happening around 1995 or so. And then the, our, our, the big day came when I, uh, we, we were on a trip. I think we were on a big trip down to Mexico. A few of us went down to Cabo. We traveled a lot, and we were down there uh, on the beach. And uh, I just brought it up and said, um, you know, I'm thinking of moving out. I waited until it was an opportune moment. and um, uh, um, Told them. You told your wife. You told others. Didn't tell my wife. Oh, yeah. She took off on her own, which she is prone to do, to go find the Hotel California. And uh, I waited until the pastor, I felt, was in a position where he wasn't going to be able to attack me too badly. And and with a couple other deacons there and everybody, I said, you know, I'm I'm wanting to move out on my own and have my own family, my own place. Um, Not revealing that I wanted to leave the whole church, because that would have exacerbated my words to a level I didn't feel I could at all take yet but that was clearly my plan i wasn't sure if sharon would leave with me if i just Mm -hmm. said not only do i want to move out i want to move to memphis (laughs) or something something like that (laughs) um so of course uh when she got back from her trip to the hotel california she (laughs) immediately could tell that I had done something really seriously, you know, troublesome. So um, we went out to dinner, and I to- told her what was going on. And that's really the moment. Is And it's because of the nature of these groups. That's really the moment where I knew, of course, she'll be with me. She'll come with me. And, and you know, she was glad, too. But you're driven so far apart in some, some of these groups that you really don't know what the other is mm-hmm. thinking. Uh, narcissistic leaders are jealous of any, any relationship of which they are not prominent. Yeah. So yeah, you mentioned in the book that it is, yeah, it does tear at marriages. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was the the pathetic part of the whole thing. Is I actually was making this decision that I mean, some couples wake up on a Sunday morning and decide if they're going to go to what church they'll go to that day. It's just you know, I'm actually making this decision. Not sure if my marriage will survive. Wow. That's mm-hmm. that's how intense things were. Yeah. So. Um, we lasted for about another six months, and uh, it was a pretty un- uncomfortable six six months. And then uh, we got to a point where there was a uh, a fairly raucous departure. Um, we there was a meeting I, I, for to confront me to mm-hmm. you know I they'd spoken to me alone. And now I would be confronted by the group, my wife and I, about uh, not supporting the pastor and all of that. So um, he stayed in the basement apartment, and his associate ran the show and, and uh, you know, pr- started grilling me on it. Now, the normal way things would go at such a meeting is you would sit there and be grilled and then humble yourself and apologize mm-hmm. and repent and mm-hmm. work your way back into good graces. But Sharon and I were so ready to go. The car was practically idling. Uh, we just went upstairs, grabbed grabbed a few things while while he was yelling at us, get back here, get back here. 
grabbed the kids, grabbed our stuff, got in our little Datsun B210, I think it was, and drove down the street. And it felt wonderful for a couple hours. Yeah, where do you go? Hotel. Uh, hotel. Okay. Yeah, I've, yeah. There's times where Ken and I are out driving, and he points to that hotel every okay. time, and he goes, that's the place. That's this the place. where I landed. Yeah. yeah, now we have, I mean, at, at the time my parents were alive, and they lived just over the hill, and Sharon's parents, and they loved us dearly, and they would have given us anything mm-hmm. to leave, and they were also... Uh, we could have gone right there and stayed, but we were so uh, humiliated sure. and ashamed, and we mm-hmm. we didn't think we were going back to the church. But I worried about Sharon. Mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to mess with a good thing. So we went to a hotel so that we, nobody could find us, basically. Mm-hmm. And I say that things were good for a couple of hours because that very night the anxiety and the meltdown started happening and it was amazing Uh, by then we had our two daughters i think they were 12 and 10 by then and then we had a baby um, uh, hannah and um that started just the uh uh neurological breakdown of anxiety and sleeplessness and fear and uh, amazing uh, response to having um, left this group. I had, for instance, I'd smoked for a few years uh, in the group. And then when I kind of repented of all of the carousing and alcohol, drugs, all the stuff I was up to, I'd quit everything picked it right back up leaving this group and um, Mm. i went from zero to like a pack a day right away and we it was just a a tremendous time we didn't know how to talk about it with anyone Mm. because we believed in the inspiration of scripture and Mm. we knew greek and hebrew and Mm. we evangelized and people at my work would ask me to perform their weddings i mean we were christians and and we did not believe we were in a cult uh we we believed cults were people that denied the divinity of the, the hypostatic union of christ and mm-hmm. so we just we had no way to talk about it and that began a process of recovery for us uh that was pretty pretty rough except that having children our recovery was that we would make sure and take care of our children Hi, I'm Gary Bershears, Professor of Theology here at Western Seminary. I want to let you know about a new degree at Western called the Master of Applied Biblical Leadership. It's a 36 credit hour degree program designed for ministry leaders who have got at least a half a decade of full-time ministry involvement and are currently involved in full-time ministry, often paid church, but not always, but they have little or no seminary education. The degree is offered in a cohort format So you're meeting together once a month or maybe twice a semester with the same group of ministry leaders for a couple of years at least, and often the same professor for part of that time to do your degree together. For more information, visit westernseminary.edu. Now back to the show. 
was your whole family feeling that anxiety? Was this extended to your kids or was it just you and your wife or just you? The kids weren't feeling weren't feeling it too much. Okay. They we didn't know this for a couple of months, but they were just ecstatic to be leaving. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sharon had the anxiety, but didn't quite act it out the way I did. She went and started a couple of businesses and just got right to work okay. doing what she does. Got busy. Um, okay. Yeah, I stayed a paramedic and uh, I was a training officer, so I I just put myself into into developing that. Um, yeah, so so I think I probably bore more than more of the neurological aspects of it. Uh, and, and, you know, went to my doctor and for a while was on uh, uh, antidepressants and, you know, different, different things to try to solve it. Mm. Uh, but spiritually, um, part of my recovery was to jump right back into, into seminary. To, okay. to, I had taken some classes yeah. as adjuncts to my church's program. And within a, about a year of leaving, I was at Western. And that's the day I met Todd. Okay. So I was that fresh when I, I, when I met you. I remember. So Todd was part of your spiritual healing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You can ask me more about that later. Yeah, but sure he was. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, don't, a, don't spread that around. <laughs> <laughs> don't spread that around. <laughs> you, but having an empathetic sure. friend uh, was, was really something. So my way was to just uh, pick up and try to pick up life, yeah. get, get back into seminary, get back on track for what I wanted. And uh, I did have a tremendous amount of academic learning that was required of the, the church. And even to this day, these, you know, the people in the church have acquired much greater knowledge stores, I think, probably than most people in my church anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I jumped right back into it. And within about 10 years, the church split in half. Uh, within a few months, it split in half. And there were some divorces, and the pastor married one of his deacon's wives who had decided to stay, and just all of the mm. sordid, you know, things. But um, And you're watching this from a distance at this point. Just well, I'm at a distance, but within about six months, because Sharon and I left, just our little family unit, but then the whole thing fell apart within a few months. Um, I, it's not that I was a big influencer in that church, but I was a a stable enough central person who lived with the senior pastor that my what they would call a defection, what, you know, had a had a big impact, and and it had an impact with the paramedics that I had recruited into the group okay. throughout my time there. Um, um, so the church split in half. It was about probably a couple dozen people that left and uh, another couple dozen that stayed. And, um, yeah, that began, we weren't really isolated. It began almost, a, 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 it wasn't a separate church, but a separate community of survivors because all we had was each other. We would get together for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, uh, we had a picnic every year on the anniversary of when Sharon and I left. I mean, we were all we had of each other. Mm. We still had families that were wanting us at those events, and we would participate in them. But we had bonded for these years so closely with each other that we routinely would, would still socialize with each other um, as a group of refugees that had left this ministry. 
So that, that was going strong for about 10 years. But it was along that time, and by, the, by then I was in ministry and pastoring downtown, that um, it, it began to occur to me that we really were not just survivors of a bad church or even an unhealthy church. You can be an unhealthy church with all kinds of troubles and problems, and you can be a pastor and a leader of a church and have uh, very serious flaws and sins and troubles, and, and uh, it might just mean you're in the wrong job. And that, uh, you know, that, that you're caught in sin, and, and there's, there's a way the church is going to deal with that. But it doesn't mean you're a narcissistic cult leader or something like that, or that your church is a cult. It just means your church is human and has problems. But it occurred to me that I was in something a lot different. Mm. We, had a couple, we had a couple of deaths in our church that were attributed to the persons being associated with our church. A drug overdose death that we facilitated this gentleman continuing to use drugs. A suicide death because we broke up uh, it was a lesbian relationship, and we weren't going to have any of that. We split them up, broke them up, and one of that couple had uh, committed suicide within a year. So, you know, that's getting into the serious stuff. And there were law enforcement agencies watching us, of course, because of the deaths. Mm. And uh, there was also um, some surveillance going on. So as I got out a few years and thought about it, I realized, you know, I've really been in something... <laughs> I've really experienced something a little different here. Yeah. And um, I wanted to start studying that more. Yeah. And uh, that involved looking at uh, totalist groups and cult studies. And um, it was also in process of going for my doctorate as the, as the years went on. And um, I had difficulty finding studies in the Christian world that could guide my thinking about mm -hmm. what had happened to me. Yeah. Um, so I began to, uh, I joined the International Cultic Studies Association, and I reached out to, uh, to that group. They have uh, a number of Christians, but they're not a Christian group or a religious group, and their, their majority is not Christian. So I had a few Christians in there that I could speak to of the perspective of having been in a, in an abusive Christian group, but um, mostly the education came through understanding what the basic qualities of totalist control are, and then I, I got the vocabulary to understand what had happened to me. Okay. Yeah, and it was... The, the, the seminal book is by uh, Robert Lifton. It's... Uh, oh... Totalism, I'm not sure of the complete title, is a 1962 book. Uh, Lifton was an Air Force psychiatrist who studied prisoners of war mm -hmm. of North Korea and China. And he developed what's called Lifton's Eight Principles of Thought Reform and uh, developed the whole theory that, that really drives modern cultic studies. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there are or actually ancient cultic studies out there, but Lifton's behind everything. Yeah. Um, and he developed the, the, the concept of there being some basic principles that can be found in varying degrees in all of these controlling groups. 
uh, be it a, a narcissistic military leader, be it a, a, a tin pot dictator somewhere, be it a multi-level marketing group that has suddenly taken over your life, uh, be it an Alcoholic Anonymous meeting that has gone off the rails with a narcissistic facilitator. I mean, it happens all over. Yeah. Lifton theorized that his principles could be applied in a non-totalist or non-totalitarian state. Yeah. And he argued in the early 60s that, especially with the, with the uh, invasion of Eastern religion into Western culture, he could see that Western culture could be quite vulnerable to totalism okay so studying him gave started giving me some boxes to put my experience in and as i and as i uh moved through um processing and studying this this thing my work became one of uh of of understanding how cultic studies applies to an abusive Christian religious uh, situation. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you yeah. this. So mm-hmm. pull, this doesn't necessarily pull you out of your, your, the biographical background, but um, just to s- sort of help us think uh, maybe a little bit more, 15,000 feet, can churches be cults? And if so, how does that work? That seems to be, that's sort of on the front end of, of your book. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's an excellent point, and it's it's very difficult to 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 get a to nail it down because <laughs> <laughs> because the word cult has become so perjurative and so so mm-hmm. uh it is such a conversation stopper yeah um so f- can a church become be a cult i i don't quite put it that way as much as i would say churches can function precisely as cults okay. in the same way the ashram down the street from you mm-hmm. functions as a cult that does not mean a yoga ashram or a Buddhist ashram is a cult, right. but it can function as a cult. Right. And that's different, of course, than what I had grown up understanding a cult to be. So can churches be cults? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now you tie this in, especially with the title of the book, you tie this into spiritual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, how does, uh, how, well, probably the best thing to do here is just sort of say, what is Spiritual, spiritual abuse. abuse. How do you define that? Yeah, yeah. Spiritual abuse is um, what happens when a person uses a particularly metaphysical or spiritual uh, philosophy or ideology to gain influence, uh, undue influence and control over a person's life. Hmm. Okay. Uh, other forms of abuse do not require the person from the inside to agree with something and go along with something. Uh, you know, monetary abuse, sexual abuse, violence, physical abuse. They don't exactly require a person to share a philosophy or, or give, uh, give uh, attention to a philosophy. Spiritual abuse involves appealing to a person's deepest beliefs. Mm-hmm. And then um, through deception and, and mistruths, lies, altering those beliefs. Uh, and, and bringing a person along a road of, of, uh, of, of being what, what is called deployable, uh, bringing them in, into the relationship for training, dismantling prior beliefs, 
instilling new beliefs and then uh, making them deployable into the culture to represent your okay. beliefs as a recruiter. Mm. Yeah. And spiritual abuse follows, follows those lines and almost always involves monetary, sexual, and uh, uh, various other forms of abuse simply because uh, spiritual abusers, narcissists are human beings too, and they like money and mm -hmm. sex and cars and all that stuff too. So yeah. it usually goes into the other areas. Hey, before we get to, um, ha you know, like profiles of, of churches, what help us understand what, what makes spiritual abuse so devastating uh, to an individual? I, I, yeah. I, I've read things that liken it to like incest. Yeah. Um, is it is it the betrayal? What, what, what makes spiritual abuse so devastating? Well, I don't know if I would say it's more devastating. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I don't think I would I prioritize it like that, but the, the reason it is so devastating, I'll just speak as a Christian, um, is because it messes with what you believed to be the nature of your relationship with God. Um, and, and it affects your ability or willingness to trust him and to trust yourself to understand truth or take in truth. So those uh, validating experiences that you have when you say, oh, let's just say looking for a new church and you go to a lot of churches and you finally find one and something just feels right about it. Mm -hmm. When that church ends up being... Uh, you know, kind of an outpost of hell, you doubt your ability to ever walk into another church and get that validating feeling again. You don't trust yourself and you don't trust a God who seems to have let it all happen and go really far, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. And then you certainly don't trust the leaders of that church either, right? I would take it. Never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's the problem, sure. Yeah, and that would be just bridging out of that idea of spiritual abuse. How does that connect to pastors and like this local church Todd was was asking about? Like, how does this? How does how is a pastor spiritually abusive? A Christian church pastor. Sure, yeah. sure. I think the place that I see pastors being the most spiritually abusive is in the various consequences they will warn of and set up for their members who do not do the things they're directed to do. That's how I see it happening the most. For instance, when the Lord Jesus told people, follow me, okay, they were standing in front of money desks, mending nets, sitting in the crowd, asking him questions. And, and what he, so he was talking to real people doing real things. And what he meant was, uh, gird up your loins, step off the curb, get in line, we're going to Jerusalem. You know, mm -hmm. he really meant something real. And from all indications, he expected you to do just that. Put your money aside and follow him. Drop your nets, leave, leave your boats with the hired mm -hmm. men and follow him. So he expected this immediate flesh and blood response to that command. Now, a spiritually abusive pastor would say, I expect you to follow Jesus. Hmm. 
So you'll be here at 5.30 tomorrow morning for the prayer meeting. Do you want to follow him or not? So you see how something very subtle has happened there? Um, Jesus isn't here. His Holy Spirit is here. But Jesus is not out on Sandy Boulevard calling me to follow him right now. So there has to be some interpretation of what that means mm -hmm. by his spirit in me. Um, a pastor who is spiritually abusing somebody starts to, to presume to speak a deeper knowledge and authority to command, mm. uh, which uh, I don't believe he's been given. Yeah. Would you say that there's sort of a bait and switch, follow Jesus, which really means follow me right. as the pastor? Okay. Yeah. When you... When you follow Jesus in a in an abusive church, uh, it will never result in the pastor making less, having less, being less, or speaking less. Hmm. Following Jesus is always going to be a group experience that enriches and promotes and elevates the person who's telling you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, he's not going to say he must increase, I must decrease. Okay. He's going to say the way he'll increase in you is to help me increase. Right. So now I can imagine from sort of pastors listening to this, I one this is extremely helpful to diagnose things. Um, could could you help us think through sort of um, you know, how um, what the dis difference between pastoral abuse or spiritual abuse is and pastoral authority or pastoral spiritual authority that so the new testament calls pastors into what can, can you help us wrestle with that sort of distinction yeah yeah sure um well the pastoral abuse i kind of just right you know kind of right. touched on that a pastoral authority i i think i should just limit my thoughts to my own experience yeah. because i i don't get out much i'm busy and <laughs> so the things that Jesus said about the leaders being the servant of all, he was not just speaking symbolically. And he wasn't saying you're going to be the servant of all by being the leader of all. Right. You've got to mm -hmm. bear this mantle of authority. I'm sorry, but you need to serve. Um, he really meant, I mean, he got down, put on a towel and got down mm -hmm. cleaning, uh, you know, camel manure off the disciples feet and that's that can only be why peter said wait um it was what he was doing was so inappropriate so uh, for that culture so i think if i find myself as a pastor enjoying perks and authority and receiving things that there's no real reason i should receive it mm. or even demanding it um i'm doing things the way the kingdoms of the world do them and i am doing top down hmm. so i think the um, pastoral authority probably is done wrong in most places often in my place in my life it doesn't destroy the church because jesus loves the church it's his bride and pastors are trying to do their best all four hundred thousand of us in america so hmm. Um, it's 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 just a common human error that we pastors spend a lifetime learning to do to really play, to get down at the bottom of the pile and to insist on it. Mm. And so I want to do that more 
And so I assume that that's probably, I'm a pretty normal guy. I'm assuming that's for most pastors that we all have a great need to explore and examine what it means to not just spiritualize those words of, of submission, but to think of creative ways to always be putting them to work and just daring God, saying, okay, I'm going to give it all up. And the only way I'm going to be on the top dog around here is if you somehow convince them that I ought to be their pastor. Hmm. And so that's kind of my thoughts about it. Yeah. 400,000 pastors yeah. in America. What, what's the profile of a spiritually abusive pastor? Uh, how, how might we recognize one? Yeah, that's a really good point. The, the first thing you'll notice is that he he or she will not be listening to this podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he or she will not be interested in understanding if they're an abusive pastor. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Narcissists and, and thugs, uh, they are simply not interested in getting some information and then saying, hey, you know what, guys? I just realized I'm a wolf. <laughs> I, I didn't know it, <laughs> but I'm a wolf. That's where all that money went, you know. Um so, um, yeah, the way to recognize them is, is uh, strange as it sounds, I believe that, that other leaders need to learn to listen to each other more. And when we see each other doing things, to at least ask the question, which you, you've done, to, to at least start asking the questions so that the person knows you're on to them. And their response will let you know if you're full of hot air or if you've touched something. Mm. When you question a pastor and you say something like, you know, you said something about, well, I remember a person that I talked to years ago and I said, you know, you're, you're saying this is a 24-hour thing, being a disciple and following Christ. And uh, if you're not able to give this amount of extra time to this particular ministry or internship or whatever it was, then you probably it probably isn't for you. I said, you know, it just hit me wrong because young guys with families and kids, when you say things like that, that means there's a wife out there that is now going to get a second job or have to work and maybe she wouldn't be working. She's not going to have her kids as much when she might have Saturday mornings to relax, now he's going to be doing his spiritual thing with you. You're making this hard on, on these guys. And I, 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 I tried that, and, and it was really bad. So I, you know, and the response was, uh, yeah, well, I'm, yeah, that's how you see it, but you know, it's what it says in the Word. And so, okay, that's spiritual abuse. So we leaders need to be willing to have those kinds of conversations, I think, with each other and speak openly about spiritual abuse, abuse with our congregations. That means taking direction from our church, mm. like uh, uh, Helmut Tielicke in, in the, young, the book for young theologians. He talked about the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through the church to the pastor and how you better listen. We we probably don't do enough of that because we, we're not sure if the Holy Spirit's there or something. But um, I think uh, laying that respectful burden on our church of, I, I need your guidance in this area of our ministry. I, I want you to be a participant in this. 
Th these are ways that we can begin to train them into what a good leader looks like and to, to constantly hold up Christ as the good shepherd and uh, acknowledge that we are, uh, like John Chrysostom wrote, wrote this book and he kept emphasizing, I am a sheep. I am a sheep too. I am a sheep. We, we have to sometimes really forcefully let them know that. Yeah. And then with the members, um, we need to train them how to respond to false teachers and, and poor leaders. We need them to know. If somebody wants this, your money, somebody's inappropriate with your wife or your daughter, someone makes you feel funny, you, you are not to assume you must be less of a Christian, so you're just going to not say anything and go on. You, you, here's what it looks like to respond to this. Mm. And there is a God, he is involved, and he will confirm your obedient response. And to have spaces in the church where they can go. I assume that's a huge issue for people who have those those feelings or they recognize there might be something off oh, yeah. and there's just nowhere to go. Good point. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And if you surround yourself on a leadership team with uh, sycophants who you know, just yes men that are that are basically there because you want them there and don't cause you any trouble the congregation you know they're they're not foolish they see that and they know that and they know they can't do that so they talk to each other and of course that that's can be, that can be unhealthy too